0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and despair? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him, But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead, and has come back to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the gospel of the Lord.
1: In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. As I stuck my head out uh, my door, we live quite close to grounds. Um, Last night around eleven o'clock, and I heard the roar that was coming from all the jubilation and the excitement that the Cavaliers are finally going to the Final Four for the first time since the 1980s, I couldn't help but think that what is good for the university and for the town is terrible for this sermon. (laughs) The parable of the prodigal son preaches to losers a lot easier than winners. Or well, who knows, but if there are any Purdue fans out there, listen up. <laughs> the pièce de résistance of Christ's parables, his rhetorical masterstroke here, which we've just heard read, it's, it's a long reading, it's, it's unbelievably profound, and it's directed, the lectionary makes sure we know, that it's directed at the Pharisees and scribes, the, 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 the goodies, the good guys the winners in the ongoing competition for public righteousness. They are upset and scandalized that Jesus continues to hang out with tax collectors and sinners, a.k.a. the wrong kind of people, a.k.a. the losers. Let's run down the parable uh, once more for the first time. There's a father with two sons. The youngest one comes to him. And says, "Give me my inheritance now." It's a bold move for a son then, just as it would be a bold move for any uh, any child now. In uh, it, because it translates uh, not just to sort of, I'm ready to sort of circumvent the will, but it's, it's he's basically saying, "Dad, stop your life, liquidate your assets, and give me what's mine." Because they wouldn't have had cash lying around or investments. It would have all been sort of livestock and things like that. So uh, he's, he's saying to him, uh, I want you dead. I want, you, I want your life to st- as it is right now to end. And I want you, you're worth more to me dead than alive. It's a very awful thing to say to someone. And yet the father acquiesces, the parable tells us and suffers both a financial loss, and because he's having to sell this stuff, and everyone would know what's going on, he also suffers a very public humiliation. Okay, so the son takes the money, and sort of hightails it to kind of Vegas, blows it all, uh, kind of on self-indulgence, until he gets to the point where he's got nothing left. He has to take a bad job, and he finally says, he's, he's feeding pigs, and he says, I don't even have enough to eat the pods that are being fed to the pigs. This, he, he has basically killed his father, and now he is as good as dead himself. There is nowhere for him to go but back home. I often wonder if it's not so much repentance that he is uh, displaying as simply desperation or pragmatism. Because it, it sounds like he still sees his father as a means to an end, as a last resort, So he plans, though, to go, and he's going to do what religious people often do. He's going to sort of say, I used to be bad, now I'm going to come, and I'm going to apologize, and I'll be your slave from now on. I'll grovel, and uh, I will sort of somehow eke out the rest of my life on uh, borrowed time. But before the son can issue his prepared statement and sort of outline his plan, how he thinks things should go to his dad, The father is scanning the horizon and sees him coming. And it says he's filled with compassion. You know, if your child uh, took half of what you own and blew it, when you first saw them, you might be filled with some emotions. But I don't know if it would be compassion. I mean, you'd be filled with rage You'd be filled with disappointment, perhaps. Maybe you'd be filled with excitement that you finally might be getting some of your money back. Who knows? But this father says is filled with compassion, and he runs to his son. Now, this is not dignified, especially not in a patriarchal society. It is the act, though, of a man who no longer cares about decorum, who has died to all of that. And it's the second indicator here that the father is not like you and me. And again, before he can get through his prepared statement, he's given sandals to wear because only slaves went barefoot. And he's put in a robe and the ring goes on his finger and he's sort of restored to his status before the entire community. And remember, if the father had been embarrassed before uh, by his son's sort of you know, uh, act of defiance and, and greed, well then to just sort of let him back in with no recompense, sort of willy-nilly, That is a double embarrassment. That is a double embarrassment. But it looks like this father is dead set on bearing the cost and the consequence of his son's wrongdoing. He's quite the doormat, we might say. Which is where we get to the real thrust of this parable. Because remember who it's being told to. The elder brother is the real thrust of this parable. You'll notice at the outset that he's also distanced from his father. It says he's out in the field. He's preoccupied with work and with making a living by what looks like obedience, in fact. So he comes in and he shows up, and you can hear the deep resentment in his voice. How dare you? How dare you give half of, take this, 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 my old, my former brother back who, who took half of our stuff and blew it. And he fills in the blank. He uses prostitutes, you know, as siblings often do. Um, So he, he, he hates grace. People hate grace, especially when they feel like they're fulfilling the law. I believe this is probably what Reinhold Niebuhr meant, the great Protestant theologian, when he said, there is no deeper pathos in the spiritual life of man than the cruelty of righteous people. What he meant was that people who think they're good are usually pretty mean. In fact, they often feel good about being mean to those who aren't good. He was referring to the elder brothers of this world, those who who overly rely on superficial indicators of righteousness that in practice belie their opposite. In other words, elder brothers are people who do the right thing for the wrong reason. You see, his trespass is internal. His brother's is external. His is internal, but it's no less real. His tantrum reveals that he also sees his father as a means to an end. He sees him as an accountant. You see, this older brother believes that he's been earning something with his hard work. That he is owed a good life. Which makes sense, you know, all of us sort of operate according to the elder brother logic. If I can just do what's expected of me, then things will work out. It's a means of control, relying on what you're owed, the bookkeeping of relationships. And when someone gets in the way of what we think we're owed, whether it be a morning off or a promotion or a chance to watch a basketball game in peace without little kids around, um, we get upset. Grace always looks offensive, right up until the moment when you yourself need it. So this elder brother evinces what could politely be called a self-righteous attitude, and it does not bode well for his relationship to the father, because it does not bode well for his relationship to anyone. Alan de Botton is the Swiss philosopher who decided to reconceive the wedding ceremony a couple years ago. Uh, and we showed this video at one of our adult ed, and it got such a great response. I was almost surprised because what he, what he says in this uh, reconstituted marriage ceremony is that the first thing that should happen when two people approach the altar is that there should be a ritual of humility in which each person reads from a book that has a listing of all of their individual failings. The book of imperfections. And so we, we watched in this video as the bride reads, I have a tendency to sulk when I don't get my way. I expect you to read my mind and I get furious when you can't. At the end, then the the groom reads something, and at the end, they both look at each other in the eye with love, and they say, neither of us is fully sane or healthy. At which point, the congregation responds in unison, we have all been idiots and will be idiots again. We are all difficult to live with. We all sulk and get angry, blame others for our own mistakes, have strange obsessions, and fail to compromise. De Botton explains himself, he says, I think there's a certain wisdom that begins by knowing that like everyone else, we are pretty difficult. And an imbalance in humility is a bad start to a marriage. The great enemy of love, understand, and of good relationships and good friendships is self-righteousness. This is what's at the core of that son's internal sin. And the father's response, though, is that he refuses to doff his hat to that kind of thinking. Instead, what he says to his son, what's mine is yours. Come die to all of that. And come and join the party. There's music and there's dancing and it's warm. And yet, tellingly, the curtain closes with that elder brother out in the courtyard. Joyless and resentful. There are three lessons we might take from this. There's many more than that, but here are three. The first is that self-righteousness is more poisonous to the spiritual life than self-indulgence. Martin Luther wrote that a human work, no matter how good, is a deadly sin because it in actual fact entices us away from naked trust in the mercy of God to a trust in self. To use modern parlance, you might say that obedience is just as problematic as disobedience when it comes to your relationship with God. Second lesson would be that if you've already got everything under control like that elder brother, Christianity may not be the religion for you. The doors are back there, and they're always open. You can come in, and you can leave. Isn't that funny? Um, This parable reminds us that the church will always be a hospital for sinners, and not a schoolhouse for saints. That grace will always look offensive right up until the moment when you need it. And the third lesson here is that we so want God to be like us, to play by our rules, but the gospel, the good news, is that God is not like us at all. This is the God who dresses up failures in fine garments and puts rings on the fingers of losers. Remember, the prodigal is in no position to entertain misconceptions about the origin of his worth. Actual status, actual opportunity, actual hope comes from the Father, from God. Let me tell you a story, then I'm finished. A friend of mine, Nancy Hanna, is an Episcopal minister in New York City. She tells the story of a woman who came into her office three weeks after her mother's funeral, after this woman's funeral. She was in the throes of disposing of her mother's house and belongings, and Nancy asks her, how's it going? And she responds slowly, there's so much stuff in my sister's. They left the day after the funeral. They just left. Now I have to pack up everything and ship it, even the photographs. The photographs? Yes, there's this wall in my mother's bedroom where the wedding portraits hang. Just theirs. Mine isn't there. Where's yours? Long pause. There isn't one. There never has been. I was two months pregnant on my wedding day. It was 1958. There was no white wedding dress. My mother said it would be inappropriate, so I wore a suit. There were only a dozen guests. One of my husband's aunts cried through the entire ceremony. It was awful. Nancy's mind flashes to a wall in her own mother's bedroom, the bride's wall. On it were the bridal portraits of Nancy's mother's mother, her own mother, her sister, and of Nancy. She writes, I am wearing the same headpiece and veil as my mother, and I looked good. I was 18, slender, and the lighting was immaculate. But best of all was the dress, a white, long-sleeved, empire waistline brocade with satin-covered buttons all down the back. Simple, rich, elegant, perfect. And yet, like the woman sitting in my office, I was two months pregnant on my wedding day. My parents and my boyfriend's parents had granted our desire to marry and raise a child, and the week before the hastily planned affair, my mother had taken me shopping for a dress. It will be a small wedding, she told the clerk, so something simple, something dark, something tailored. As they get into the shop, they make their way towards the mother of the bride section, and Nancy says, My heart sank. As my mother searched through the rack, the white brocade bridal ground caught my eye. It was on a mannequin. I walked over to it and began to finger the material. My mother watched me. She left the mother of the bride dresses and came to my side. Would you like to wear this one on your wedding day, she asked. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Then you shall. My grieving parishioner is quiet and still now. I say a prayer. We agree to talk again soon. My mother's gracious gift of love has borne fruit. Thanks be to God. It's a beautiful story which illustrates the counterintuitive difference between the world's way of dealing with behavior and the God's. And yet, beautiful as it is, We need much more than a beautiful story or even an incredible timeless parable about who God is. You see, Jesus couldn't just come down and tell this parable, put it down on paper and then leave us. He couldn't tell us this story about how we should all die to what we are owed and to our plans for our lives. You see, he himself had to die. Because let's go back to that elder brother standing alone in the courtyard. What's he going to do? Well, if we take the rest of the New Testament as our guide, he not only stayed outside, he was so offended that his rage grew murderous. You see, the moment that Jesus stops telling this parable, the Pharisees who he told it to seek to kill him and they succeed They drive him from the banquet hall where he is rejoicing with his disciples all the way to the hill of Golgotha where he would be rejected and not just by the self-righteous, but by everyone. Prodigal sons and elder brothers would crucify our Lord. And yet the gospel this morning is that we cannot get rid of God so easily. The stone that the builders reject becomes the cornerstone, and as Paul tells us in Corinthians, by his death and resurrection, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses, external, internal, against us. Yet for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, white dresses for all.
0: Amen.